0: It is a joy to be with you this morning and to know that what is done here as it relates to our gatherings on a Sunday is not built around the personality of a preacher, it's built around the text of God's Word. And so if you didn't notice when we were singing, we began singing God so loved the world, this gospel work that God has done that has called us together this morning, and then we moved into this praising of this fount from whom every blessing comes from and yet we know our hearts are sinful and we tend to pull away from that and wander and then we pressed in a little bit more deeply on the holiness of God and our need for his holiness because we are not like him even after our salvation we are not like him my heart's heavy this morning because the text is a heavy one our church has been studying through the book of 1 Thessalonians now for a few weeks, so if you're visiting with us, you're kind of stepping into a world that uh, you may not be prepared for, but we're in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, and this morning we're going to look at the first 12 verses, and I've got to tell you that it's a, it's a heavy word. And what's wonderful about this heavy word is that God intended us to be here this morning in this text In light of all the events that are taking place in the world, within the SBC, and within our own lives. So as Paul was communicating to a group of people that he led to know Jesus and taught them what it means to follow Jesus, he's writing a letter to them to instruct them on what he had taught them before. So often he will use, you know... Not that fill in the gap, that little phrase that we do, you know, you know. But like, remember what I said to you when I was there. Remember what you learned from the scriptures. And so this morning we're hearing Paul take them back to the basics because these were young believers who struggled. Now that Paul was gone, his time there was brief. Old habits are coming back into their practices. They're getting pressure to conform, and so the apostle is writing on behalf of the mission team that was there to these believers. So if you would find your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you're using one of our Bibles that are here provided by the church, that's page 987, and I'd ask if you would follow along as I read the text that we are going to listen to and learn from this morning. Finally, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you, each one of you Know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us For impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul's finally is obviously not a finally as we understand it, last things. There's much that continues in the text after this statement that he makes in verse 1, but it's the first time in the book that Paul has been overtly teaching the church. Up to this point, he's been rehearsing their past together, the, the joy of their fellowship in the gospel, and the work that God had done in saving these people when they heard the Word of God and they believed that it was indeed the Word of God, not just new teaching from some new preacher, philosopher that had found his way into Thessalonica. But here, even what Paul says as teaching is still connected to what has been previously taught. His desire is simple, and it's, it's the same responsibility that we have as Christians today. It is this. It is to walk and please God. That's it. That's our responsibility as Christians, simply to walk and please God. Now he has to get into the particulars of what that looks like because he's addressing the situation there, So as we work through this passage, don't think that the only thing Christianity is concerned about is sexuality. It's not. Paul's addressing this topic with this church because of the context of what was taking place in that church. Christianity speaks on many more topics than just our sexuality. But this is a need, and it's, it's a sobering word. I've got a brother-in-law who's a pastor, and sometimes he will let parents know, uh, next Sunday's sermon's going to be like PG-13, you know, rating system. I'm going to do my very best to be clear, but not provocative. I'm not trying to incite people to sin or get lost in the details but this is a real pressing need for the Thessalonians, and I believe it's the same need for us as well today. Paul says he's writing to them about sanctification, and in particular, sexual purity. And he tells them in verses 4 and 5, you need to abstain from sexual immorality. We're going to get into what that means in a moment, but that teaching is followed by, also, by a warning to not sin against a brother. So it would indicate that in some ways the church, within the church, there were improper relationships taking place that Paul is addressing. Now, Paul roots all of the, his teaching not in the, the missionary team and the thinking of man, but he roots it over and over again in the Scripture, in the very words of God. He wants them to understand, I'm not speaking to you as a Puritan, <clears throat> as a pious prude, as someone with my Jewish background, with all the Ten Commandments and all this stuff. I'm not, that's not what is coming to you. It's the Word of God. This is the way God intends the lives of His children to be ordered And then in verses 9 through 10, Paul celebrates their love for one another and urges them to do this more and more, to keep loving each other. There's always going to be a need for love to be poured out in the life of the people around us. And then he challenges them to be productive with their lives, to work hard, take care of themselves so that they would be godly witnesses to society. So as you look through the passage, we're just going to work through verses 1 and 2. And then 3 through 8 and 9 through 12. Verses 1 and 2, Paul uses two verbs. In the ESV, they're translated ask and urge. But they're two different words. The first, he's making a request. It's kind of like a friendly conversation that he's having. The second is an urgent exhortation. That's the one that comes from an authority. Like a teacher says, sit down, we're going to start class. Versus, hey, why don't you come sit by me? That's the friend, right? And Paul uses both of those verbs, and those tones are clear to his audience because he wants them to know he is speaking to those who are eager to hear from him, and he also has a word to those who are indifferent, perhaps, to what he's about to say. So he's going to provide clear instruction on what it means to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. So if you look at this passage, I think it's broken down in three ways. There's a corrective, verses 3 through 8. If you want to write this down, if you're taking notes, it's very simple. It's not ingenious, uh, a, a stroke of genius on my part. It comes right from the text. Abstain from sexual immorality. That's the corrective that Paul is addressing the church about. And then you will see in verses 9 and 10 that Paul provides an affirmation, something that the church is doing very well. He encourages them to do it even more, and that is to show brotherly love. Now, just to be clear, when he uses language that we would deem masculine, that is always in the generic sense of the whole congregation, okay? So he's not just speaking to men here. He's not just talking uh, when he says in verse 4 that each uh, one of you know how to control his own body. That's not just men he's addressing who are the problem. This is a generic uh, understanding, all right? He is speaking to the church, male and female. <clears throat> and then we have verses 11 and 12 where Paul provides a second corrective and that is simply I want you as Christians to have an ethic of quiet living and hard work so if you look at through the movement we have a, a corrective to abstain from sexual immorality we have an affirmation keep on showing brotherly love to one another and then we have another corrective to live a quiet life one of diligence. We're going to work through the text that way, and I wish that we had more time, but let me just give you a little picture of what life was like in Thessalonica, and you tell me if this looks a little bit like our day and age. Demoth- I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Demosthenes, an ancient historian, expressed this sexual or this opinion regarding male sexuality, and it was widely held in that day. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and be faithful guardians of our household. Doesn't that sound misogynistic? Add to that that the city of Thessalonica was not a small podunkville, It wasn't a population, as I drove through yesterday, parts of Nebraska uh, of 80-some people or 105 people or 250 people. Thessalonica was a major metropolis. And in this city, there were numerous temples to a variety of gods and to the cults of worship that were formed around these. There was the Temple of Dionysus, Aphrodite, Osiris, and Isis. The Kiberius and the Priapus, all of these religions, guess what they promoted? It was sexual license. So remember, this is a Gentile congregation that Paul is working with here. So when he says, uh, when he brings up Gentiles in verse 5, not like Gentiles, not like people just like you who don't know God, you're to be a Gentile who does know God. But these Gentiles grew up in an environment where going to Church, you see my air quotes? Going to church involved all kinds of sexual immorality. He is now having to pull them back from that and show them that that is not at all a way in which to worship the true and living God. And so I have no doubt that these believers found it difficult to abandon these pleasures even though they had been converted to the worship of the true and living God. They grew up doing this and Paul's gone and maybe what Paul taught us was just kind of his take on it. I mean, we heard the word of God that Jesus is the means of salvation, but when it comes to this, I don't think I heard Paul that way. Did you? Perhaps some might have thought that the moral instruction that was given uh, was just from this teacher, and it was part of Paul's DNA and his makeup. But here's what we know. According to Acts 15, Paul brings an issue to the church in Jerusalem that called together this council to to decide the matter of how should Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ, How should they respond to the law? What's their obligation to obey the law? And the conclusion of the matter is found in Acts chapter 15 verse 20 and 29, and it was this, to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. So what Paul's teaching, his tool bag, when he goes and starts a church somewhere and people come and hear the gospel and they believe it and they repent, he teaches them that now you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Live as a daily sacrifice. You remember these words from Romans 12? And so Paul says, God not only owns your heart, he owns your body. He owns your sexuality. He owns your identity. And you're to live in such a way that reflects that. Not that just continues to be syncretistic with, oh, I'll just add a new God to my repertoire, covering my basis. Our lives are to, to be devoted completely and solely to him. But lest the Thessalonians believe that this teaching was driven by uptight Jews, by a guy named Paul, and it was just his thinking alone. Notice in verse 2. Paul says, we gave you instructions through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, this is God's will, your sanctification. Verses 4 and 5, Gentiles, brothers, you ought to control your body in holiness and honor, not like those who don't know God. And verse 6, the Lord is an avenger, not Paul. Paul's not coming to take names here. This isn't like the church in Corinth where Paul says, you better get your house in order before I get back. He says the Lord is an avenger in verse 6. And in verse 7, God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. You do not disregard man's instructions, he says in verse 8, but God's. And you grieve the Holy Spirit who is in you. Paul, what he's doing is, he says, you guys, remember how I just said to you that you heard the word of God and you received it as from God's word? That's in chapter 2 and verse 13, in case you're wondering. He says, you need to understand that the thoughts that I communicated to you, the teaching that I communicated to you was actually God's mind on this matter. You see, it is God's will that his children would be sanctified. I got an amen over there. You know, there's this understanding that we need to have positional holiness. How God views us. The moment of conversion, positionally, God declares sinners holy. How does he do that? Because he's poured out his wrath on his son. And the righteousness that the son had has been transferred to our sin account. And therefore, the debt has been paid in full. And positionally, yes, when true repentance takes place, and let me just say that, repentance, not just confession, but repentance and confession, when they take place, true positional holiness is there and it's secured forever. You will never be any more holy in God's eyes than you are now which is a comfort to those of us who are overtaken by a fault. God doesn't love us less because we've been caught in our sin. Our love, his love for us is always the same. So we're not talking about a positional holiness here. Paul isn't. He's talking about practical holiness. It's something that must be worked out in our lives, hour by hour, day after day and that is a term that we call progressive sanctification. You know, none of us are perfect from day one, and then after conversion, none of us are perfect from day one of that. So there is this continual growth, this understanding that should shape our lives. The Spirit's voice should be listened to more and more, and His people should then start expressing the attitudes, the outlooks, and the ambitions of the Savior. In this understanding of holiness that Paul's referring to, our practical holiness, God has declared us righteous and without guilt. He's applied Jesus's substitutionary atonement to us, and as a result of the Father's adoption of his children and this new union with Christ and our being filled by the Spirit, we now have certain obligations. You see, all the Christian obligations, they come to us after our conversion, not before it. And this is, this is where Christianity as a whole um, steps way away from all other world religions. Ours is not a works-based righteousness as, as our works, right? We're not doing these good things in order to merit some favor from God and get a big attaboy or you're forgiven after doing so many of these. Our salvation is rooted in the righteousness of another, and it's Jesus. And therefore, what Paul is speaking of here is that we now have, having received that righteousness, undeserved favor, we now have the responsibility, yea, even the calling, and, let me say, we also have the ability to increasingly reflect and practice God's holiness. This is not God asking, setting us up for failure. Do something you don't have the power to do. Nor is it God saying, I want you to do something and then I'm ready to whack you when you get it wrong. It's God saying, I have given you this opportunity and I've enabled you to do it. Because you have my spirit. So, all that to say, is our culture any less sexualized than the ancient city of Thessalonica? I don't think so. I mean, the the sexual revolution in the 60s is still bearing very disturbing offspring. So in our day, consensual hookups are are shamelessly promoted through apps. They're bragged about on social media. And there's just a, a plethora of sins that we could run down a list of what's taking place. And as you already heard this morning, even in churches... Pastors are abusing their authority and exploiting those into their care. Members are sinning against members and because of status or reputation that's being glossed over and not addressed. Victims who are crying out for justice from those very shepherds who should be protecting them are told, just be quiet. Truly, forgive and forget. So unbiblical. We have we, we have justified anything as long as both are consenting. And what's happening now is we are pushing the boundary into abuse more and more and more. I mean, our society is a mess, and these things ought not to be. And God has called the church to abstain from sexual immorality, both of the abusive nature and even of the consensual nature. Here's what we believe as a church. We believe that God gave sexual intimacy as a gift, a joy, a real pleasure, a real bond of connection and relationship. But that gift was to be shared exclusively between one man and one woman committed to one another in the union of marriage. And anything outside of that is a distortion of it. Anything outside of that is a missing of the mark. It is what the Bible would call sexual immorality. It doesn't matter if you're looking at porn. It doesn't matter if you are having an affair. It doesn't matter if you are both single and you're just casually having these encounters. It doesn't matter if it's a same-sex attraction. It gets, it, it's all underneath that category of immoral, impurity, a lack of holiness. Now, this is easy for us Christians to say, right? Because, like, we're supposed to be the righteous remnant. We're not surprised that God's holiness isn't reflected in the culture around us. But South Canyon, have you considered that this is one of the means by which we needed to write a child protection policy in our church? To protect the children in our church and to protect one another? To vet volunteers so that they, we would have some level of, of transparency about history, about experiences. You see, churches are a high target area for predators. And we want to discourage anyone from targeting the children of our church by letting them know up front. You want to serve in children's ministries? Great. Well, we have this process that you go through. And when people are serving in children's ministries, we also understand that our policies, they must be checked up on, they must be overseen, they must be enacted, because as we've seen from the SBC do- document, there was a lot of policy there, but it wasn't followed through on. It wasn't applied judiciously, rightly, unilaterally. It was applied to some and not to others. But yet, we see in these policies a desire to discourage anyone from targeting children, and we want the congregation and our community to understand that we value protecting our children. It's of our, the highest importance, and we also want, also want to assure parents and those that those who are teaching and providing care to their children are safe and trustworthy. Now, no policy is ever going to do that perfectly. It takes people to be attentive and to be watchful, to have clear communication. But there is a process by which we are trying to do things in a right, a decently and orderly way. Let me ask elders and deacons, for that matter, church members, how are you guarding your heart and your reputation? We work side-by-side side with people all week. Many of us spend more time with our co-workers than we do our own families. Are you sharing details with your coworkers or anyone for that matter, that will promote intimacy with someone outside of your marriage? You've got to be careful about that. I worked for five years in a company that was a Fortune 50 company. If you know my background, it was Lowe's, okay? So um, I wasn't in the executive office, but in my short time there working in the role that I had, I can't tell you how many affairs I saw because people were spending more time with their coworkers and they were investing in those relationships to the neglect of their spouses at home. This is a real danger we have to guard our hearts against. Are you alone with someone of the opposite sex for extended periods of time without anybody else being there? I mean, the Billy Graham rule, it's, it's, it's a great thing. It protects everybody. It's not a suspicion. I mean, if we, if we think of this as, well, you're casting a shadow on somebody. No, we are protecting Everybody. God desires that we listen to him and live so that our lives please him, that we would walk properly before the unbelievers around us. And so we are confronted here in this text with teaching from God that is applicable to the people in every age, in every social circumstances. Christianity's understanding of sexuality is based on God's word, not human beings'. And that explains how at different times, Christianity can be countercultural. It's not a sign of our desire to be stick in the muds, our desire of some self-righteousness, a deficiency of a lack of love for our neighbor. It's because of our love, our lives, our loyalty belongs to Christ. So there is a way that we can be right and yet rude, and that's not to be the case. But Paul is saying we need to be right and loving, as he goes into later in the passage. We obey God regardless if it puts us at odds with society. And there's a real warning here. Paul gives it twice, verse 6 and verse 8. I mentioned it again in case you're a Marvel hero. uh, You know, you got the word Avenger in here. So I guess uh, there's some connection to our culture. But the Lord is an avenger in all these things. This is serious stuff. And Paul goes on again in verse 8 to say, When you disregard the instructions, the teaching that was given to you by the mission team that was here, you are not ignoring people. You are disobeying the very God who saves you. And in fact, who has given you his spirit. And Paul expects that when they read that and when they hear that being read in their public gathering, on their Sunday gathering, that they, the Spirit of Christ in them would loudly say yes and amen to that. If they were in sin, the Spirit would rise up and say, Yes, brother. Yes, sister. This is true. You have been grieving me. If you're not a member of South Canyon, I want to thank you for coming this morning. Like, it seems real heavy, right? What we do here on a weekly basis is we look to God's Word for instructions on how we should live, for correcting us, instructing us, exhorting us, encouraging us, helping us, clarifying issues. But let me ask you, if you're a guest here this morning, you're not a member of South Canyon Baptist Church, I wonder if there was such a place where people weren't judged by their past, If there was a place where dignity and respect were actual experiences rather than slogans, where momentary pleasure was replaced by lasting joy, would such a place interest you? You see, Jesus came into the world to bring hope and life to sinners. And the cleansing that Jesus promises, it removes guilt and shame before God. And so, regardless of my past, regardless of the past of the members around you that you see, and you may think they've got it all together, let me just tell you this. You are forgiven by God through Christ. God cleanses you of your past, He restores your identity as His child, He clothes you in righteousness. You're not defined by what you've done anymore but by whose you are. Your new identity is who you belong to, not what you did. The world says to live your best life, you need to indulge in things. And what do those things end up usually producing? A lot of pain, a lot of guilt, and a lot of shame. Yet Jesus says that when those who follow him live in ways that please the Father, they will have clear consciences, they will have true freedom, and they will have joy. What do you do if you find yourself in this place? You're you're afar from Christ, you don't know God, and you long to. You long to be clean, you long to be washed and made new. Well, Isaiah the prophet says this, Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. The very fact that your heart is being pricked is a sign that God is trying to woo you to himself. He's trying to show you that these words are not the words of men but of his very nature. The prophet goes on to say, let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God For he will forgive generously. The Lord goes on to say, My thoughts are not like your thoughts, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. If you're a Christian and you're a part of the church, or you've been here attending regularly, Remember these words from James 2.12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So we are employing you this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ, as guests, as friends. If you know Christ and you are a disciple of His, that you ought to walk and please God. And to do this more and more, do not practice sexual immorality. I encourage you this afternoon to take a moment and read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-11. through 11. I think Peter's words correspond so perfectly to the text that we're in this morning. He is reaffirming that Christians are to abstain from sexual immorality, that indeed God will be the one to whom we give an account for what we do in our lives and our bodies. And that we as Christians have the privilege of living a life that brings glory to God through Jesus Christ. We've spent a lot of time on a heavy, heavy tone, a truth that needs to be told, it needs to be held up, it needs to be cherished. Christians are to be people who are marked by purity. Now let's look briefly at verses 9 and 10. Paul tells them that that you are loving one another, and he encourages them to do this more and more. And I wonder, how is it that they showed their love for one another? I mean, Paul had warned them or, or, or chastised them, don't sin against your brother. So, um, in verse 6, transgressing. So, maybe these sexual uh, immorality was taking place within members of the church. I don't know. Or it was just an offense to see someone going back to the temple and doing those practices and then having them show up at church on Sunday and they're talking about it and that bothered brothers. I, I, I don't know. But I wonder, how is it that they showed love to each other? A brotherly love, not a sexual love, but a familial love. And now, this is a tough word because some of us come from families where, you know, it was oil and water. And so your brothers were your best enemies, not your best friends. But within church, and you know this to be true, within your friendships... There's a real harmony and a real unity, and there's a real partnership that takes place. So think of the love that Paul's speaking of here that he calls brotherly love like that, where you do anything for these people, where you will, you will get up early in the morning to go help them do a project, you will stay late at night, you will deprive yourself of food, of sleep, of money to help them in a time of need. How did these believers express that? Well, think of it again. Not only was Thessalonica a hotbed of sinful sexual idol worship, but it was also the capital city of the province of Macedonia. So this is a main thoroughfare. And I think maybe these Christians were showing brotherly love as Christians from other places came to Thessalonica to conduct business or to travel through and route somewhere else, that they showed them charity. They showed them hospitality. Instead of going and sleeping the night at a brothel and hoping that you can just kind of erase your mind of all that you see and hear, stay in our house. It's a safe place. We'll provide you a meal, and we'll do it at no cost. You know, Christ, this is what God's called us to. They also provided help to churches in other towns, probably. However, it was that it looked like practically what became clear is they were known as hospitable, loving, and helpful believers. That reputation went further than the boundaries of their city. So I wonder, South Canyon, how how are we doing practicing brotherly love, and how can we do this more? Well, let me just encourage you as I reflected on this week of all the ways, not all. Let me let me things ways that were clear to me that we're doing. We support Teaching Truth International, Love Inc., Redeeming Grace, Pine Ridge, Reaching and Teaching, the Fantas who minister to international students. We support Great Grace Missions the Black Hills Pregnancy Center, Cornerstone Rescue Mission, the IMB, the Dakota Baptist Convention. We are supporting gospel-centered efforts, and that indicates that we love people. We desire for people to know the gospel, people we physically can't reach, but people that we can support who can reach those people. That shows a generous heart. The good news is getting out. But you know there's ways that, like Paul says, we can do this more and more? You know what? This church has a geographic location that is a draw. Um, the Black Hills have a charm that draws people here, right? And we are in a location where, in a lot of ways, there's, there's a great need for gospel churches in the Dakotas, Wyoming, Nebraska, Montana, what if, what if our church said, we want to invest in training pastors, not just hear from James each week, but to see men who are interested in the ministry, we support them so that they can sit alongside the elders at South Canyon. They can learn how to shepherd rightly and wisely, and we support them for a year or two, and they get training here, and then we can send them out to do a good gospel work somewhere. And we are not just thinking about our church, but we're thinking about the church. We got VBS coming up next week, right? And there are so many other evangelistic efforts that we need to make as a corporate body and as individuals. Here's something that um, we use a lot of the Nine Marks materials in our teaching and training here at South Canyon And I I was made aware of the fact that they are trying to get so many good materials translated into other languages, but they lack the funds to do it. So one of the ways that we could do more and more in showing brotherly love is to give to those efforts where now pastors in Russia or in Chinese or Arabic or in Portuguese or in Spanish that they would have within their own language resources that they could read and distribute to their churches. I mean, there's so much good that be done. We ought also to be praying that God would raise up people from our very midst, people that we love and would not want to see go, but long to see them go and minister to the, the gospel, to the nations. It would be hard for us to say goodbye to our sons and our daughters, to our friends but we have a heart for the nations. What a joy it would be to send out missionaries who grew up and were a part of this church. Individually, hey, here's something we can think of very practically, praying with one another, not just for one another. So Sunday nights, Our PM gatherings are built just for this purpose. If you haven't come to one before, I encourage you to join us as we pray for our corporate and individual evangelistic efforts. As we hear what God is doing around the nation and through our relationships and we pray over those needs, that you join us and pray with one another. But this is a very practical thing too. We could just start speaking words of affirmation to one another. You know how it's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease? And sometimes our words, especially coming from a parent who's trying to recover from the bad parenting habits of correction, 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 there's a lot of life in just affirming what's taking place. Proverbs 10.21 says, The lips of the righteous feed many. We ought to celebrate what we see God doing in each other's lives. We ought to tell people how important they are to one another. There is no one who comes here who ought to ever think that they are alone. We ought to increase in speaking the truth to one another and doing so in love. Now some of us have a problem because of our sin nature. We hedge on the truth. We withhold and then some of us struggle with our sin nature. We want to speak the truth, but we struggle in doing it in love. By our actions, we ought to show that we love one another. By cheerfully contributing our time and abilities and treasures. You know, I learned something amazing last week, and it's this. Did you know that each month that we have services, we need approximately 70 volunteers to staff our children's ministries? That's life classes, all the classes in Sunday school, and then it's during your church right now. So you as a parent, you're benefiting from the fact that your kids are in another room and you're able to focus on the message here. They're getting fed, they're getting cared for, and you're getting fed and you're being cared for, and every week we need 70 people. I also learned that we don't have enough volunteers. We need around another 30 to 35 more people. So if you'd like to learn more about what that is, and you've already heard the big disclaimer, we're going to run a background check on you. We're going to talk to people who know you. We're going to watch you, and we're going to make sure that you're a good fit. If that is of an interest to you, then see Tanner. I'm sure he would be happy to uh, follow up with you on that. What Paul is saying is, Is he wants the brothers to keep growing in brotherly love. There's always a need for more and more love. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We finally come to verses 11 through 12, and this is my finally, even though it wasn't Paul's in verse 1. All right. Paul may be challenging the institution of patronage. and urging Gentile Christians to abandon this form of daily support. What does he say in verse 11 and 12? I want you to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What is Paul doing? Well, in that day and age, there was this institution called patronage. And it it looked like this. And it's still practiced today in a lot of cultures. Clients, if you had a need, you would attach yourself to a patron. A patron was someone of a higher status and of economic means. And what you hoped to receive from the patron was benefits such as food and representation before the courts, in government, with a local magistrate and officials. And so the clients would give the patrons their honor and they would build up their status in the in society, and so literally, we're told that patrons would open their doors in the morning, and there would be their clients would be out there wishing them a good morning. How are you today, sir? I hope your day goes well. And so, what you had happen is that more clients a patron would have, the more important he or she would appear to others. Honor was the name of the game. Patronage was more. About the patrons at times than the clients, which prompted this satire. Listen to this. I thought this was interesting. I had to include it. It came out of a commentary I used. And he's quoting this ancient guy who says this to a rebuke to patrons You know how to present a shivering client with a threadbare coat, and then you say, I love the truth. Tell me the truth about myself. Like, you see a brother or sister having need and you tell them, James says, go and be filled, be warmed, be fed, and you don't meet that need? That's not religion. And yet you had these patrons who are like, hey, their clients are out there in the wintertime. Sir, you know, it's kind of like the Tiny, tiny Tim thing. Man, just have a, a quarter here, a penny here. Can I have some resources? And, and they give them things that are useless. And then they say, oh, tell me how good I am to help you. This was practiced widely in Greek and Roman circles, and again, with this church largely being Gentiles, it's possible that these brothers and sisters were still practicing this, even as new Christians, and it was doing a disservice to God's name and the reputation of Christ. They were going out, and in a sense, they were expecting the patrons to take care of them, and they were not taking care of themselves. Others think, well, Paul's not just addressing a problem with a cultural thing, that this is a church that got so caught up, as we will see in the weeks to come, about the second coming of Christ, that they stopped working, literally. He's coming. Any moment, why do I need to be at work doing something I hate? I'll just wait for him. And then because the waiting kept being waiting, they become a burden to the church who is helping them and taking care of them, and they're not taking care of themselves. And further, maybe even perhaps, idle hands are the devil's workshop, and so now they're spreading around and starting to gossip, and they're getting into each other's business, not in a helpful way. Whatever the reason, whether it was uh, an abuse of patronage that produced laziness or it was a misguided zeal for the Lord's return, Paul's clear. Things must change for the good of God's name and the church's witness to outsiders. Now, let me just say something, and I need to say this. To be clear, Paul isn't saying it's wrong to receive help from the church. Paul received gifts and support from churches in Philippi and Corinth, churches collected offerings to help other churches during famines, we read of in Acts 11. Church members helped each other in physical, tangible ways. We read of the Thessalonians' brotherly love just a couple verses b- before. So as someone, me personally, who our family was struggling in a, in a really tough year, I was in a car accident, I missed work for six to seven months, and again, it was at the Fortune 50 company, and I didn't have health insurance. And so we were struggling, and our church there... Took care of us through the benevolence offering. So if you're receiving help from South Canyon's Benevolence Fund, don't hear these words from Paul go work, take care of yourself, don't be dependent on anyone. Don't hear that as a slap in the face. I'm thankful that we have deacons who administer the Benevolence Fund, that they have a process by where they, they filter to make sure that what is being given is being used wisely and that the circumstances and the need is real and genuine. And that's why it's important that we understand the context of the Scriptures. Because if you just read this, you might feel bad if you're receiving benevolence from South Canyon right now. You know, well, I'm not to be dependent on anyone. I'm not to work with my own hands. I'm trying to work. I can't find work. Or I don't work and get paid a wage where I can take care of all these things. I need some help. You know what? That's okay. That's not what Paul is addressing. The culture was wrong. The practice was wrong. Paul was addressing an abuse. He wasn't speaking to real needs. So the church, by and large, and I mean every member, is to be a positive example of who God is to those who are outside the church. We earn the respect, even if it's begrudgingly, of non-Christians by our purity, our brotherly love, and our quiet but diligent lives. And when we provide for ourselves, instead of milking the system, as it were, in the area of patronage, or neglecting our responsibilities from some misguided theological zeal, we don't need other people to provide for our needs when we provide for ourselves. But it goes further than that. We don't simply work so that we don't need people's help. We work, first, because it pleases the Lord, second, because it provides for ourselves and our families, Third, because it allows us to actually help others, show brotherly love to people, and finally, it provides a good example to those outside the church. And guess what? Paul says in verse 12 that Christians who abstain from sexual immorality, who affirm and practice brotherly love, and who are diligent to live quiet and hardworking lives, they will walk properly before outsiders. There will be a gospel witness as a result of that. It's not lost on the world around us. Holiness is a blessing to every home, every neighborhood, every city, and every society. Proverbs 12, 26 says, One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. And again we read, When righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. What our world needs is to see Christians who are sold out for Jesus. Not in word only, but in deed. Indeed people who understand that there is an identity that they are known by and they will order their lives accordingly. We are not living according to rules in order to get righteousness. We've been given righteousness and we are living in gratitude in response to that. So I encourage you this morning, hear these words, not as the words of men, but as from the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would give us help. We pray that you would protect. May the things that are brought to light be used by your glory to bring healing, restoration, sanctification, and holiness. And may we as a church, as we order our lives around your teaching, may you use us even more to do good to those who are around us, for the gospel to go forth and to save more and more people. Lord, we long to be holy as you are holy. Make it so. Help us to persevere in our practice. Help us to rejoice in the salvation and the positional holiness that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.